0: Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against Thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to gather together this evening as a body of believers to worship by studying your word. We pray that as we continue our study on these vital principles of the spiritual life, that you will make it clear to us where we need to be challenged, that we may understand your grace, understand how that relates to our spiritual growth, and that we may maximize these principles in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We have a malady this evening of lateness. I told uh, Dave, I said, too bad we don't have the bell working. And look look on the parking lot and everybody's enjoying the nice weather and chatting in the parking lot and not looking at their watches. Romans chapter 8. I think it's, always interesting how in the plan of God things somehow work out when you're studying three different subjects as we are, studying Judges on Sunday morning, first hour, Gospel of John, second hour, Romans 8 on Wednesday night, that every now and then all things come together in some kind of a complementary balance. In the first hour in Judges we've been looking at the paganization of a nation and how a culture. Uh, gets, becomes paganized. And in other words, they, they reject divine viewpoint, reject the truth of God's word, go on negative volition, and more and more reject even establishment principles. And the result is the fragmentation of a culture and its degradation and perversion affects everything in the culture. And on Sunday morning, we looked at, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and the subject there was Jesus praying for the disciples and believers who are in the world but are not of the world. And there are two of the three great enemies to the Christian. The three enemies to the Christian are the world and the sin nature, and the third is Satan, the devil. And in these, this last week, we're really focusing on two, the flesh, which is the sin nature, And that is the internal enemy of the believer and is the source of all temptation. The sin nature is not the source of sin. The volition is the source of sin. The sin nature just tempts us to sin in terms of our area of strength and area of weakness. We all know the diagram. We're familiar with the diagram of the sin nature. Sin nature is motivated by lust patterns. And those lust patterns go in one of two directions. We either trend towards lasciviousness licentiousness, antinomianism, or we trend towards legalism, asceticism, and extreme morality. Now, everybody's different. Some people trend one way, some people trend the other way. And everybody has a sin nature, and your sin nature may not be very attractive to somebody else. And we have to recognize that many things that go on in our culture are simply the results of of unrestrained sin natures. When I was uh, traveling some the last couple of days, I read the latest issue of Time magazine. There's a fascinating article in there, and I think it's this must be the current issue, about what's going on in many of the mainline denominations, Episcopal, Methodist, Presbyterian, and the de- divisive issue related to the role of homosexuals in these denominations. And Southern Baptists aren't fighting that problem yet, as the writer of the article observed. Uh, The chance of a Southern Baptists accepting homosexuals formally in the denomination is about as great as uh, Reformed Jews kicking them out. But this is a major issue today. There are those in crusader arrogance and who want to justify their perverted sinful lifestyle and force that on the church. And to do that, you have to basically reinterpret the Scripture Scriptures make it clear that homosexuality is a sin, but it is one thing we have to do in the church is not try to classify it as some super category of sin, just as Christians always tend to do that. It's either divorce or it's homosexuality or it's alcoholism or something, but Christians always have this tendency towards superficiality and to classify some particular segment of sinfulness as somehow greater or worse are more heinous than any other category of sin. And all of these categories of sin, as we will see, uh, classify, are, are all just, they're, they're equal. And it all depends on the, the trends of the lust patterns of that particular individual towards either legalism or licentiousness. And that's, and with homosexuals, that's just the trend of the sin nature. But you don't justify it any more than you come along and say, okay, we're going to justify and condone adultery in the church... Or fornicators in the church, uh, it's all classified as sin, and so you take your stand on that issue. You don't try to gloss it over, and you deal with everybody in grace. Now, the one thing that does distinguish homosexuality from other categories of sin is what we find in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is an analysis of the breakdown of a culture, the pathology of a negative, of a culture that is negative to God. And we see three stages of deterioration and degradation in a society, starting in verse 24. And each one of these starts with the same phrase. Therefore, God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over. And then in verse 28, uh, God uh, gave them over to a depraved mind. So you see that each of these represents a stage of divine judgment on a culture for their negative volition. And homosexuality is certainly part of this. But notice how it starts in 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Historically, that really began in the late 19th century in our culture when people started shifting to rejecting creationism and shifting to evolution. Then verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Now God giving them over puts God as the subject of the verb to give and indicates that this is an active active movement on God's part and its judgment. That's one thing that distinguishes homosexuality from other sins of passion and lust. But even when you get down into verse 29, which is in the Third category of judgment, you have all that this society will be filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, that's jealousy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers. Just think about what's on the afternoon talk show Sunday when you're talking about sins of the tongue, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, and that is the... This is the worst category of judgment, and we see all of these taking place in our nation. And the sad thing is that churches are being pressured to justify these aberrant behaviors, everything from slander and gossip to homosexuality. And we're going to see more and more pressure in the coming years upon Christians, especially in the workplace. Sometimes I feel very sorry for people who are in certain jobs and certain corporations, especially if they have to deal with, with uh, employees a lot, because more and more the government is mandating policies that must be standard operating procedure in the military, standard operating procedure in, uh, in hiring practices, in the way you treat people, uh, not just the way you treat people, but in various policies that must be there that are 180 degrees opposite the, what a believer should be doing and it's a real challenge not to be yielding not just to the problem of the flesh the sin nature on the inside but we have cosmic thinking the the cosmic thinking on the outside that provides the ideology the rationales the philosophies and this doesn't have to be very sophisticated these Philosophies can be as simple as, well, everybody else is doing it, so why can't I? These are the justifications that are used to um, rationalize committing the sins and yielding to the temptations of the sin nature. And yet what we find in the Scripture is that the believer is to take a firm stand against these things. Now, I don't mean culturally going out on some kind of crusade to stop homosexuality or I mean, that's been the problem in legalistic American Christianity since the Second Great Awakening, is that operating on the assumption that man and society are perfectible, Perfectible American so-called evangelicals have come along and they have always identified certain sins as the great social evils and if we would just do away with those, then we would bring in a perfect American culture. And back in the 19th century, it was slavery... It was um, alcohol, the whole temperance movement. It was the uh, uh, feminism in its earliest forms, the 19th century, the suffragette movement. It was, had to do with a lot of labor issues. Not to, this is not to say that there weren't valid issues involved in each of these arenas, but the overall ideology that under, undergirded all of these movements was that man was perfectible, society was perfectible, America is the promised Christian land, and we can make it the promised land, going back to the old Puritan idea of a city set on a hill, and that idea got perverted through legalism, and so the idea was let's go out and impose these ideas on society as a whole and try to perfect American culture. And the result is we're still dealing with racial problems, The whole issue with alcoholism went through the prohibition movement and all the problems with that. You have a full-blown feminism now that is destroying our culture, destroying marriages. Uh, I think that what goes along with that is is uh, a rise in abuse. But I'll have an article I'll read in relationship to this on Sunday morning, an editorial that was published in um, uh, in a number of it was published in a number of newspapers one of Thomas Sowell's recent editorials and it has to do with how there is a specific overt active agenda put out by the feminists to uh, feminize boys in school and introduce them to their feminine side and to masculinize women and feminize boys. And all of this just grows out of this same matrix, Uh, labor laws, the influx of uh, many although there were unjust labor practices, both in terms of children and in terms of uh, abuse from the top. But the solution was was, uh, unionized labor, which took away a lot of freedom from workers, penalized a lot of people for different issues. All of this came out of the 19th century and is a result of the arrogance, basically, of the legalism of the Second Great Awakening. And all of this just comes out of having uh, a cosmic, concept our philosophy of life ideology and rationales towards a country and towards its culture and as Christians were called upon to take a stand against these things there is a battle and this is the relationship between the flesh which is the sin nature which has its own set of standards and the cosmic system which provides the ideological rationales to justify the sin nature and we see this coming to a head in the conflict in the believer's life in Romans chapter 8. We have a description here of two different walks, two different standards, two different, um, we have two different results and two different inheritances in this chapter. So let's go back and review a little bit the argument that Paul is establishing back from Romans chapter 6 that every believer at the instant of salvation is entered into union with Jesus Christ. This is done through what is called the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, and at the instant of salvation we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. The result is, New life. That's covered in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. This is what Paul refers back to to make sure his readers come to a full understanding of this argument in the first four verses or first three verses of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's the argument for justification by faith alone in Romans 3, 4, and 5. For those who are in Christ Jesus through the baptism of God the Holy Spirit, retroactive positional truth. For the law, that is, the principle of the Spirit of life. Notice, I want you to pay attention, we'll come back to it, but how the Holy Spirit is referred to in this passage. For the principle of the Spirit of life. It's a genitive of description there, indicating that it is the Holy Spirit who is the agent of regeneration. Titus 3.5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it is God, the Holy Spirit, who makes us a new creature in Christ through regeneration, and that is also called the new birth or being born again. And it means that when the believer is born, we have our, when an individual is born, we have a body and we have a soul, but we are lack, either lacking a human spirit or it is inoperative, so that we are. "...considered spiritually dead and cannot have a relationship with God. And it is at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone that God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to the believer a human spirit. And this is that aspect of his immaterial nature that allows the individual to have a relationship with God. So this is the life that is talked about here, the spirit of life, that is, regeneration, which is in Christ Jesus." We are, if you're in Christ, you have this new life positionally. For the law, the principle of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of the principle, that is, of sin and death, which is slavery to the sin nature, and that was covered in Romans chapter 6. Verse 3 states, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, and this uses the Greek word adunitas, indicating impossibility. That the law, it was impossible for the law to solve the sin problem. It is weak. It is only to establish the standard. It could not solve the problem. It just illustrated in each of our lives that we are sinners and in need of something more than simple moral reformation. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. That's supplied by by the translator, although it has... It makes it easier to read in the English. God is the one who accomplished what the law could not do. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, this is talking about the incarnation. It is not talking about the uh, crucifixion. God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for, that is, with reference to sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that is, by His very life, He pioneered a new spiritual life based on the power of God the Holy Spirit. This is unique in all of history. And Jesus Christ demonstrates that in the power of God the Holy Spirit, we can overcome any problem we have, whatever those lust patterns may be, no matter how strong they might be, no matter how overwhelming they might seem, no matter how often we may feel defeated by those lust patterns, whatever they are. The Holy Spirit is more than sufficient to overcome that. That doesn't mean it's going to happen in a one-night stand. You're not going to walk the aisle and have some kind of experience with Jesus and the next day never worry about that sin problem again. It is a slow, gradual process. It is a growth process that as we grow by learning doctrine under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, then God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us what these problems are and over time they will be dealt with as long as we are doing what the Scripture says to do. They will become less and less of a problem. The thing is, if you have one person sitting back on one side of the church, and they have a problem with homosexuality, or with drug abuse, or maybe they, they're a kleptomaniac, or maybe they have a problem with worry, whatever it might be, God is going to deal with their various sins in a... Way that is tailored to that individual. That means that during the first ten years, that person's a believer. God may deal with one sin and then another sin and then another sin. Now, somebody on the other side of the church deals with has the same problems, the same basic lust patterns, the same areas of weakness, and yet instead of God taking uh, taking dealing with them with the same order, He reverses the order. Now, what happens is this person now conquers the overt sin, whatever it may be. Let's say they're a kleptomaniac and uh, uh, now they start telling the kleptomaniac on the other side of the church that he better straighten up or they're going to kick him out of the church. See, that's self-righteous arrogance. Failure to understand the principle that, well, God's not going to deal with this guy's kleptomaniac problem um, until he first deals with the worry problem. Now, this guy's going to get the kleptomaniac problem dealt with first and then the worry problem. So we always want God to treat every believer the same. And that's just superficial and, frankly, it's idiotic and unrealistic. And we all know that because God deals with us individually. So that way we can all relax and not worry about what God's doing in somebody else's life, but we can just focus on what God's trying to do in terms of our own life and bringing us to spiritual maturity and dealing with our own set of problems because, frankly, if we're honest, Our plate's pretty full with our own set of problems. We don't need to be too concerned about anybody else's sin, no matter how disgusting it might be to us. So, what Jesus Christ demonstrated for us in the Incarnation is that the principle of Bible doctrine plus the filling of the Holy Spirit is more than sufficient to deal with any sin problem. Jesus Christ dealt with every category of temptation and handled it without sin demonstrating the sufficiency of God's grace provisions for the church-age believer. Verse 4, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And here I made a point of noting that you have two important phrases here, the two different walks and the two different standards, the walk according to the flesh and the walk according to the Holy Spirit. And the Greek phrase that we have here is the preposition kata. And kata plus the accusative indicates according to a standard. So what we have here is the believer who either walks according to the standard of the sin nature, which means that he is... And this is necessarily implied. If you're walking according to the standard of the sin nature, then you're going to be justifying it with a certain amount of cosmic rationales. Or you're going to be walking according to the standard of the Holy Spirit. Now, a standard implies clear verbal propositional revelation to know what the standard is. This isn't some sort of mystical standard that that we're all going to get together and have some sort of religious experience and hold hands and sing uh, 20 verses of Kumbaya and until uh, we all get some kind of uh, religious ecstatics and then think, oh, well, this is what God wants me to do. Now, that's what a lot of groups do today, but that's not what uh, you do if you're really concerned about the Scripture. It is the Scripture which has been inspired by God the Holy Spirit, revealed as part of His ministry to man that provides the standard. That means it provides all the prohibitions and all the positive mandates for the Christian life. And as the believer grows, then we saw that the requirement of the law is fulfilled. And the law, the requirement of the law is to love one another as Christ loved the church. And we saw that in reference to Romans chapter 15. So this is the new law, the new mandate that God gave, the, that Jesus Christ gave the church back in John chapter 14, that we are to love one another even as Christ loved the church. And that is fulfilled only as we progress in our knowledge of doctrine and application. It is produced by God the Holy Spirit. So the growth process means that on the one hand, there is the input of Bible doctrine. On the other hand, it is done by means of the Holy Spirit. So we have two different standards and two different means. The means here is the Holy Spirit, and we get that not only from a later verse in this passage, but also Galatians 5.16, walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit provides the objective standard, which is the principles of the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit provides the means. The means is not the sin nature. The means is the Holy Spirit. And if we're taking this into our, the, the innermost part of our soul the cardia, the heart, then God the Holy Spirit produces the growth. It's not our volition. We don't go out there and say, I'm going to stop this sin today. I think every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves and with our spiritual experience, we've all tried that. The experience of the Apostle Paul over in Romans 7. We do what we don't want to do and we aren't able to do what we want to do and we try to just stop it by the force of our own will Operation Spiritual Bootstrap. We try to do it on our own without relying upon God. And the principle of Scripture is relax, learn the Word, let the Holy Spirit do the work inside your soul, and the result is going to be growth like a tree. And eventually the Holy Spirit produces the fruit which is the, the character of Jesus Christ. But the root is not the character of Christ. The root of this plant is the thinking the mentality of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we see here emphasized in verse 5. There are two different mentalities at operation in the believer. For those who are according to the flesh, so the person who is operating according to the sin nature standards, those who are according to the flesh set their minds. Now that term, set, implies a volitional decision that we're responsible for. You set your thinking on the things of the flesh, a genitive of relationship, the things related to the sin nature, the things that are attracted to the sin nature, the things that appeal to your particular area of weakness, whatever it might be. If you have an area of weakness, of, of uh, pride and arrogance, then uh, you're going to see certain things and it's going to blow your arrogance up and you're going to start judging other people and perhaps that goes along with sins of the tongue and so you start... Uh, running other people down or slandering, showing how bad they are and that they just can't figure out how to apply this doctrine in their life. Maybe it's a problem with overt sin. Maybe it's sexual lust. And that's your basic motivation. And that's expressed through maybe homosexuality or maybe adultery, maybe fornication, whatever it is. And so you set your mind on that. You're thinking on the things that relate to the weakness of your sin nature. In contrast, But that's the failure believer. That's the believer that's going to end up at the judgment seat of Christ with nothing but eternal life. No rewards, no capacity, and a loss of inheritance as we will see. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit. So it's either one or the other. If you're according to the Spirit, according to the standard of the Spirit, you want to know the Scriptures, you have made that your priority... Those who are according to the Spirit set their thinking, that's, it's ellipsized from this second half of the verse, but it's, that's Paul's thinking, that those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's your volition. You make that your priority. That doesn't mean that, that, um, athletics are wrong. That doesn't mean that television or entertainment's wrong. That doesn't mean that auto mechanics or whatever your favorite hobby is, surfing the internet, uh, trying to uh, dabble with uh, with uh, computers, whatever it is that you enjoy doing. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just that you're going to make sure that the priority in your life is learning and applying doctrine. So you are going to be attracted to the things that relate to spiritual maturity and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And there are two different results. So we have two different walks. We have two different uh, standards. We have two different types of thinking and two different results in verse 6 the thinking that is set on the flesh that operates according to the standard of the sin nature the result is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace and we saw that this is not uh, eternal life versus eternal death in terms of the lake of fire if it were then we would end up with a works type of salvation skip down to verse 12 so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting death, putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now look at that verse. This helps us understand the meaning of death and life in this chapter. If you are putting to death the deeds of if you're if you are living by the Spirit, the second half of verse 13. If by means of the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If live there means eternal life as opposed to death meaning eternal condemnation, then what that verse is saying is that you have eternal life only if you are putting to death the deeds of the sin nature. That's work, salvation. And yet, time and time again, that's exactly how this verse is being taught. It's amazing how many people, as soon as they see death, as soon as they see life, they automatically think in terms of everlasting life versus eternal condemnation. But this is the capacity for life, the capacity for joy and peace and happiness and experiencing all of the blessings, the wonderful, incredible blessings that God has for us in this life that no matter what our circumstances might be, we always can experience that, eternal, uh, that, that supernatural peace and joy that God has for us. So back in verse 6, we saw that there's two different mindsets. When you're walking according to the standard of the sin nature, attracted to the things of the sin nature, it's carnal death. If you want to self-destruct, fragment your life, end up a failure at the judgment seat of Christ, and be sure you're absolutely miserable, then this is the prescription. Just focus on the sin nature and do whatever you want to do to satisfy your particular lust patterns or trends. On the other hand, if you do not want to be that kind of a self-destructive individual, then you have to focus on the Holy Spirit, and that means you have to go uphill. The spiritual life, I think, is a struggle because we're fighting this internal enemy of the sin nature. You just relax and you'll just do what the sin nature wants to do. So it's a constant issue of making decisions, forcing yourself. It's a battle. We have to be on the offense. This is what we're, we, we will see in uh, the negative example of Judges. is The Israelites did not pursue the objective. They did not stay on the offensive morning, noon, and night, day in and day out. They wanted to just relax. And as soon as you relax in the spiritual life, you've lost the battle and you might as well hang it up. It is a constant battle. Constantly engage the enemy. Constantly thinking. Constantly fighting, constantly having your guard up, constantly ready to catch some temptation, catch the sin nature, catch the world system trying to slip one past our defenses. It is a uh, continuous battle. Verse 7 The mindset on the flesh is antagonistic to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. This is the, the uh, believer in carnality, is of course in rebellion to God and not in submission. Because it's not able to do so, there has to be a shift, and that's rebound, that's confession of sin, that's First John one nine, Recover, the grace recovery system to uh, move from carnality to the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit. And then Paul reminds his readers in verse eight, those who are in the flesh, and here there's a shift, not according to the flesh now, but in the flesh. That means unbelievers. He's saying those who are in the flesh can't please God any more than a believer who's according to the flesh. And when you're a believer living according to the flesh, you're not living any different from, a, from an unbeliever. So, straighten up. Get your focus. Look. Verse 9. However, you are not. You. Emphasis here. When he comes to verse 9, he starts... This is where we stopped the last time. He starts with a... And all through here, he uses this same format. He starts off with a post Positive. That means in the Greek it comes second. Conjunction death. Now, death is sort of one of those all-purpose words in the Greek that can mean and, but it can also mean but. And it's primarily used in this contrastive sense throughout this section of Romans 8. So there is a contrast. He wants to uh, contrast the unbeliever in the flesh in verse 8 with the believer who is not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, in verse 9. So to do that, he does two things. He uses the de here, the d-e, to indicate this contrast, and then he uses the second person personal pronoun of ego in the next verse. This is translated you. It's the second person plural. You all, or y'all, as we'll translate it. However, y'all are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And he is making a point here. See, in the Greek, the main verb here is um, aimi. It is the present active imperative of the verb aimi, e-i-m-i, which is the verb to be. And when um, uh, when it's a second person plural form, it implies the subject with it. You don't need... In in English, you have to state your pronoun or you have to state the subject. But in the Greek, if you just have the verb in, uh, in the second person plural, it's automatically translated, you are. But if you really want to emphasize the person you're speaking about, then you add the pronoun. And in this case, it is humes. And so when you have that emphasized, he's making a point that you, you Romans, you all you all are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. And this uses the Greek phrase in, E-N, plus the dative of sphere. This is very similar to the phraseology that Paul uses when he talks about the fact that at salvation we are in Christ. And that is the phrase in, E-N, plus the dative of Christo of Christos, Christ. So what we have is at salvation, we are not only entered into Christ, but according to this passage, we are also in the Spirit. spirit. We are in the sphere of the Spirit, and this all has to do with our positional eternal reality. From at the instant of salvation, we're in Christ and we are in the Spirit. He says, You all are not in the flesh. You're not like an unbeliever anymore, so why are you living like an unbeliever? Why do you have this adopt the standards of an unbeliever? Why do you think like an unbeliever? Why are you reasoning like an unbeliever? Why are you using cosmic rationales like an unbeliever? You are not in the flesh, in the sphere of the flesh, like an unbeliever is, but you are in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And here he uses, uh, instead of just the norm in, in Greek, and I have to stop and give you a little lesson in Greek, Greek uh, syntax here. In English, you have one way to state a conditional clause, translated if. In the Greek, there are four different ways to translate conditional clauses. The first class condition means if, and the protasis, that is the first clause, the if clause. You have two clauses in a conditional sentence. If you are running, you will get tired. If you're running as a protesist, that's your first clause, that's the condition. The protesist is the conclusion. If you do this, this will happen. So, if you have a first class condition, this assumes, generally, it assumes the reality of the condition, that it's true. In a second class condition, it, it rejects, it does not assume, but re- assumes that the condition is not true. so it rejects its, its truthfulness and the uh, a, a potos- or the is viewed as untrue. In a third class condition, this is where you have your, your true condition, maybe it's true and maybe it's not. And a fourth class condition is rare in the New Testament, basically means I wish it were true but it's not. Peter uses that a couple of times in First Peter. Well all through this section we have Paul using first class conditions again and again and again and so he is assuming the reality of his condition. He says and but here in the Greek the if is the Greek word a e i but he joins it with a conjunction per which makes it very strong. <coughs> in his reasoning he says if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You're not in the flesh if the Spirit of God dwells in you. So here he's talking about being a believer because every single believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So if you're not, if you are a believer, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and therefore you're not in the flesh anymore, but you're in the Spirit. Now, then he comes up with the next clause, but if. And there we have the same conjunction again. He says, and it's death, which we just saw. That conjunction, D-E, but, translated here, but, and then E-I, if. But, if, first class condition, but if, and we're going to assume it's true, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, assuming that they do not have the Spirit of Christ, he, that person, does not belong to Him. And that's not literally true, it's really altos, and it's as a genitive of possession, it's translated, does not belong to Him or is not of Christ. Now, before we stop and take a look at the doctrine of the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit, I want you to notice something that is very subtle in verse 9. Notice the way the Holy Spirit is translated, or or, is referred to in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God. Theos, the genitive of theos, indicating from the source of God, this would be God the Father. If indeed the Spirit of God the Father, indicating the Spirit's coming from God the Father, dwells in you. But if anyone does not have what? Now we shift from Spirit of God to Spirit of Christ. Spirit plus the genitive of Christos indicating the Spirit comes from the source of Christ. He does not belong to Him. Now, those of you who were here about two months ago on Sunday morning on the John series, we went through a doctrine that, that very few people ever study, and that is the doctrine of the double procession of the Holy Spirit. And it is, one of, it is the doctrine that split the Eastern Greek Orthodox, or Syrian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church from the Roman Catholic Church, in about the 10th century A.D., and it has to do with the Trinity. Now, there in that passage we looked at then in the in uh, John chapter uh, 15, Jesus said, talks, was praying to the Father, and says the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. Now, that's the only verse that I ever see referenced for signifying the double procession of the Holy Spirit, which indicates the relationship of the holy spirit to the authority of both father and son and yet it is very subtly present in this verse according to this grammar that the spirit the genitives of god the genitive of source and of christ genitive of source both indicate that the spirit is under the authority of god the father and god the son and so that substantiates the doctrine of the double procession of god the holy spirit now that's just a little free extra charge. I don't want to get distracted uh, tonight by going back through the doctrine of the double procession. But it's not just in one verse. It is present at least in Romans uh, 8, verse 9. Well, let's stop here a minute and just do a brief review of the doctrine of the filling and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Point number one, at the instant of salvation, every believer is both filled and indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. At the instant of salvation, every believer is both filled and indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Point number two. The indwelling is one of six permanent ministries of the Holy Spirit at salvation. The others are, of course, regeneration, baptism of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, efficacious grace, and the bestowal of spiritual gifts. But indwelling is one of six permanent ministries But the filling is a temporary ministry. The indwelling is one of six permanent ministries, but the indwelling is a, I mean, the filling is a temporary, temporary ministry. Point number three. Each has a distinct purpose. The indwelling is for the purpose of making the body, the human body, a temple for the indwelling of Jesus Christ. This is in 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 3.16, in that order. The indwelling is for the purpose of making the body a temple for the indwelling of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 3.16, and setting the believer bodily apart. The very presence, the very fact that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who sets apart our bodies a temple for... For Jesus Christ sets us apart physically from unbelievers. That's part of the doctrine of sanctification. We are set apart physically by means of the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Remember, there's no sacred buildings. Don't refer to a church as a as a going into the um, uh, uh, what do they call it? The uh, uh, I've never heard sanctuary. You don't go into a sanctuary, your body is a sanctuary. You go into an auditorium, you go into the church, but the sanctuary is sanctus. it's the sanctified area. And the only body that's sanctified is your body, not the physical building. So there is no sacred building in the church age, only the human body. Point number four. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a permanent relationship, relationship regardless of carnality or spirituality. The indwelling is a permanent relationship, but the filling of the Holy Spirit is a relationship depending upon your volition and your relationship to the sin nature. Point five. Indwelling is based on the character of God. It's permanent. It's not taken away. It's based on God's character, who God is, what Christ did on the cross, not on our character or what we do. The filling is based on your volition. If you sin, it's your volition to sin and get out of fellowship and lose the filling of the Spirit, and it's your volition to confess your sin, 1 John 1.9, to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. So, point five, uh, indwelling is based on the character of God. Filling is based on the believer's volition. Point six, indwelling is related to the body, Filling is related to the soul. Indwelling is related to the body. Filling is related to the soul. We are filled by means of the Spirit. What is filled? The soul is filled. What is it filled with? It's filled with doctrine. We know that by comparing Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16 and their results. And we've gone through that study in detail. Point number seven. The filling is lost when the believer sins. Any sin, known or unknown, intentional or unintentional. Any sin, whether you know it or not, still violates the perfect righteousness of God, and so he can no longer have fellowship with a believer who uh, is characterized by sin. The filling is lost when the believer sins, the indwelling is never lost. The filling is lost when the believer sins, but the indwelling is never lost. Point number eight, the filling is recovered through confession of sin which means simply to admit or acknowledge your sins to God the Father in the privacy of your priesthood, and you're instantly forgiven. And then point number nine, in the Old Testament, believers were neither filled nor indwelt. So both filling and indwelling are unique to the church age. Now this is what Paul is referring to in Romans 8, 9, that the believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and he is also in the Spirit. Notice his progression. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit is in you. So just as Christ is in us and we are in Christ, the Spirit is in us and we are in the Spirit. That sets us apart to God's service positionally. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So verse 9 is clearly talking about believer versus unbeliever. Verse 10, and if, once again we have the same Greek construction, debt a, and if Christ is in you, and we will assume for the that he is, Christ is in you, and he is, because Paul knew they were believers, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now this references phase one salvation. God has a plan, and that plan is the blueprint for every Christian, and it's the same. Phase one is justification. Faith alone in Christ alone. And this is what we refer to here in verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead, the physical body is still uh, under the penalty of physical death as a consequence of spiritual death because of sin. Remember, spiritual death is the penalty for sin. Not physical death, but spiritual death. But the result, the consequence of spiritual death is every manner of suffering in the human race, including physical death. If, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, it's still going to die physically because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. At the instant of salvation... God, the Holy Spirit, imputes to the believer the perfect righteousness, or uh, the perfect righteousness of Christ. God, the Father, who is perfect righteousness, looks down and sees the perfect righteousness that's been imputed to us, and He says the believer is now justified. That is what it means to be justified by faith. This, because we are justified, God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates gives us a new human spirit. All of this happens simultaneously at the instant of faith. The spirit is alive, that's regeneration, because of what? Because of imputed righteousness. This isn't practical righteousness. This isn't going out and doing good deeds. This is The spirit is alive because of the possession of imputed righteousness. So there is, even though everything happens simultaneously, There is a logical progression. First, the imputation. First, you trust the gospel. You believe in Christ. Second, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. Third, God declares you to be just. Fourth, the Holy Spirit makes your human spirit alive in regeneration. Now, there's a consequence to this. Most of what we've been talking about, in Romans 6, 7, and 8, has had to do with phase 2 sanctification. But in this verse, Paul is taking the phase 1 positional sanctification of the believer and relating it to phase 3. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. This all happened at phase 1. But if, and here we come to verse 11, And again, it is debt, a debt in the Greek, but if, and we assume the Protestants to be true, first class condition, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and He does, it's assumed to be true, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who indwells you. What's that? That's phase three, glorification. That is talking about the resurrection of... Of the physical mortal body at either the rapture, or at the rapture, or um, you might die physically first, and then you are raptured from the grave, or you are just immediately uh, taken from in a bodily resurrection, in which case you get your new body on the way up. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that is if you are a believer, and you are, Paul is saying, and you are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that is talking about God the Father, He, God the Father, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies. See, they're dead in phase two. They're dead in their temporal mortal bodies. He, God the Father will give life to your mortal body through His Spirit. Now, don't worry, it will look different. It will be a perfect body. Whatever the blemishes or imperfections are that you're focusing on all the time, whether it's underweight, overweight, aging, gray, bald, in between, whatever it might be, we're all going to have perfect bodies and we'll still recognize each other. Now, I don't know exactly what the mechanics of that will be, but we will all recognize each other when we get to heaven. God the Father gives life to the mortal body through His Spirit. So the rapture resurrection that occurs at the end of the church age, will be, that will be performed through God the Holy Spirit who indwells you. This is because the belief, only church age believers are involved in the rapture Only church age believers are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and the procedure of taking us from either corrupt, being corrupt in the grave, corrupt flesh in the grave, or corrupt still alive, uh, corrupt flesh that is still alive. It is the Holy Spirit who effects that transformation from mortality to immortality at the rapture resurrection. Then we come to verse 12. Now, all of this Paul has established to show that there is a difference between you and the unbeliever. You have a, you're to have a different mindset. You're to have a different lifestyle. You're to have a different source of norms and standards. And you are to have different consequences, life and peace rather than death. So from all of this, he draws another profound conclusion in verse 12. He starts it off in the Greek with the inferential... Particle un plus the conjunction ara. And in the Greek it's really ara un. We just have to change it around to fit the English word order. But the last time we saw this kind of strong inference was in verse 1. So 1 through 11 is one argument based on the fact that every believer is justified, and so that makes a profound difference in how we live and the consequences of how we live. And now he moves to the next stage of his argument, and that is that not only are we not under condemnation, but we are under obligation. There are responsibilities if you are a believer. You are under obligation to God. Now, that is not legalism. That goes to the fact that you have a different family now. You have a different authority, a different master back in Romans chapter 6. This isn't antinomianism that says now that I'm saved I can do whatever I want. This is biblical Christianity which emphasizes the responsibility of the believer to advance to spiritual adulthood. Why? Because back in Romans chapter 6 we had the purpose clause that we might walk in newness of life. We weren't saved simply to spend eternity in heaven. We were saved to advance to spiritual maturity, to glorify God in the angelic conflict, so that when we got to heaven, we could have our inheritance, take possession of those eternal blessings that God has set aside for us. We have two categories of blessings. I call them contingent blessings in time and contingent blessings in eternity. And they are contingent upon our spiritual growth. And when we do not grow spiritually, that cancels. We never uh, realize, we're never given the the, uh, temporal blessings, and we will never receive the eternal blessings, and they will constantly be reserved as a testimony to our failure in the spiritual life. So this is the new emphasis in verse 12, is the obligation and living up to that obligation. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. Now, the word there in the Greek is a noun, aphalates. And aphalates means to owe someone something. That we owe God something because God did something for us. Now, that doesn't mean that if we don't uh, fulfill our obligation or responsibilities as believers that we lose our salvation. That's ridiculous. We will lose rewards and we will lose inheritance, as, as Paul outlines in the coming, uh, coming verses. But we do have an obligation. It's it's like this. If I were to give you a brand new year 2000, uh, what would it be? Something like a um, BMW, sports car, Jaguar, whatever your favorite flavor might be. And that's yours. You get the title. It's yours. It has your name on it. You own it. That's yours to do with as you will. Now you own this vehicle. It is your responsibility, no one else's, to maintain that vehicle. If you do not maintain that vehicle, if you don't get the oil changed, if you don't get tune-ups, if you don't uh, fill it with gas, if you don't keep it clean and wash the salt off, off of it during the winter, it's going to rust out, it's going to wear out, and before long it's going to sit in your driveway and just, just sit there and fall apart. It will do you no good. You own it. It's yours. That car is yours. It's not taken away from you. Well, see, that's how a lot of people treat the Christian life. God gives them these fantastic assets. God the Holy Spirit promised us joy, incomprehensible, and a peace of tremendous stability beyond our comprehension. And all of these assets, the mechanics in Scripture to grow and mature in the spiritual life. And what do we do with this possession? Instead of living up to our responsibility to learn God's Word and make it a priority, to walk by means of the Spirit, and to obey God and get inv- and uh, uh, make learning doctrine under the filling of the Spirit a number one priority and applying it for growth, what do we do? Oh, I think I'm gonna stay home tonight. It's such a beautiful night. I'm gonna sit outside and and just have a have a little barbecue, or or I'll go to a ball game today, or I'll take a weekend trip, or. Are the kids, you know, it's important for those kids to be in some kind of sports, so I'm going to make sure they're in sports, and, well, they'll just miss Wednesday night Bible class, and they'll never learn that doctrine's number one. You know, we come up with all kinds of things we want to do to avoid our responsibilities as believers, and the result is there's only one loser, and that's you. You're the one who's going to lose out on your contingent blessings in time and your contingent blessings in eternity, and you're the one who's never going to see these fantastic things that God has for you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what happens? I do the same thing. We get distracted with all the things that are going on in the world and we forget that our citizenship is not in the world, but we have been sent here as ambassadors for Christ with an eternal mission to represent God and to communicate the gospel to people, to advance to spiritual maturity, and to glorify God in the angelic conflict, and nothing else matters. But because we're creatures of the flesh and we're living in the world, we give in to the flesh, to the sin nature, because it's attracted to these temporal things. It's not that they're wrong in and of themselves. It's where you place it in your scale of values and your priorities and whether or not doctrine and the glory of God is number one or number two or number three or number 15 in your life. So Paul says in verse 12, So then, brethren, that means believers, We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the standard of the flesh. That's no longer your obligation. Chapter 6, you're no longer a slave to the sin nature. For if, and here he has a series of four clauses, gar, indicating he's going to stair-step his explanation. For if, first class condition, if you are living according to the flesh, and we'll assume that you are, you must die. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to go through temporal or carnal death. You'll be miserable. You'll go through self-induced misery. You'll go through the divine discipline. You will never experience the blessing God has for you. You'll be overrun with worry. You will get involved in all kinds of overt sins that are going to come back to haunt you and create problems for your life, maybe criminality, maybe disease, whatever it might be. You're going to go through the natural consequences of your irresponsibility and your sinfulness or God will intensify it through divine discipline. So if you're living according to the sin nature, you will die. You will go through carnal, temporal death, and you will never experience everything that God has for you. But if by means of the Spirit... Remember earlier I said we had the two standards according to the Spirit, and here are the two means, either the flesh or the Spirit. But if by means of the Holy Spirit you are putting to death, that is not doing, saying no, putting to death the deeds of the body... You will live. This is the abundant life that Jesus promised. And it is done by means of God the Holy Spirit and according to the standard of God the Holy Spirit. For all who are being led by means of the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now here we get into a totally new doctrine, the doctrine of adoption and the doctrine of inheritance. And we just don't have time to do that tonight. So we'll close here and start with verse 14 next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we can be challenged by these things to focus on our obligation uh, based on the incredible spiritual blessings you gave us, you bestowed upon us at Salvation, the vast array of spiritual assets we have to live the spiritual life, to overcome any problem, to face any adversity, to have happiness, joy, stability to your honor and glory that we might glorify you in the angelic conflict and demonstrate that your grace is superior to everything else. Father, we pray that we might not forget these things. In Jesus' name, amen.